Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Marcy Cheek, and this is my show, Say What? Where? When? And most importantly, why? I've been asking why my whole life. <laughs> my mother said it was the first word I ever spoke. You know, not mama or dada, but why? Because much of what has happened uh, in my early life, uh, I just simply did not understand at all. Did not make any sense to me. And I would say, well, why? Why? My mother said I drove her crazy. And finally, she just would say, because I said so. (laughs) Well, I wasn't able to accept that either. So from the earliest memories, I was looking into things. We didn't have the Internet in in those days, but we had libraries. And any time I was with someone that uh, I felt could give me some information. I would ask a million questions. I've been asking those questions forever. (laughs) And so we've been uh, talking on my show about weddings because that's for the last 18 years what I've been doing is doing beach weddings, weddings at the beach in beautiful Laguna Beach, California. Um, I welcome you getting in touch with me if you have any questions about your wedding or if you've been thinking about having a beach wedding. It's not exactly the same kind of a wedding that you would have at a church or at a hotel. It has some elements to it that you need to be aware of. So uh, you can always email me. Uh, My email is m. C H E E K zero five zero nine at AOL. Uh, a lot of you will recognize that as an old email address. I've had that uh, that email since 1997, and it is just so out there that I just wouldn't have any idea how to go about changing it to a more modern address, so I'm just sticking with the old, it's my M is for Marcy, and Cheek is my last name, Cheek, like dancing cheek to cheek, and 0509 is my birthday, so Cheek 509 at AOL, just give me a, a holler, uh, let's talk about your wedding, if you, and if you have any questions about getting married, or if you're with Mr. Wright, uh, I have written a book to help you with this. 
uh, with some worksheets and some ways of uh, knowing a little bit more about your, yourself as well as uh, giving some thought to this person that you think you might like to spend the rest of your life with. And you can download my book for free at www.mrright, and that's M-R-R-I-G-H-T, the abbreviation for Mr. M-R, Mr. Wright, for me, and that's F-O-R, not the letter, uh, number, Mr. Wright for F-O-R-M-E dot com. Uh, my li- my book is in uh, all the libraries here in Orange County, California, where I live, but it's also in all the libraries in New York City, Chicago, and Los Angeles, the three major cities in the United States. So you can download the book, do the worksheets, and find out a lot of information about yourself and uh, Mr. Wright. Is he Mr. Wright? <laughs> so today we're going to look at wedding traditions. Have you ever wondered why <laughs> we do the things at weddings? Of course, you'd know I would ask why, right? Why does the father give the, give the bride away? Um, why does the bride wear a veil? Why do we exchange rings? Why do we feed each other cake? (laughs) Why do we toss the bouquet in the garter? Why do we throw rice? Where have all these traditions come from? When did they start? And what do they mean? So let's just look into this. Did you know that the original word for bride meant to cook? (laughs) And the word for groom came from a word that meant male child. Tradition really is such an interesting part of our lives. We, uh, We continue doing things long after we even know the reason uh, why it was done in the first place. Uh, I met a groom who was Catholic who was marrying a bride who was Jewish. And it was easy uh, to choose the tradition for the Catholic boy. We just, I just said the Our Father for him and did the sign of the cross. But the Jewish girl, uh, I asked her what she would like to do, and she said, well, um, we always break the glass at our weddings. So I think I would like to do that. I said, all right. Well, a couple days later, she called me, and she said, uh, I told my mom and dad I wanted to break the glass at the wedding, and neither one of my parents know why we do this. (laughs) Do you know why? (laughs) She asked the right person, didn't she? (laughs) Of course I know why. Well, when I was uh, getting my ordination, of course, I studied the Jewish history. And I know the real reason why uh, Jewish people break the glass. And it had to do with the temple being destroyed in Jerusalem in 70 A.D. 
which was the outward visible sign of the Jewish people as a nation. And at that time, that's when the Jewish people were dispersed all over the earth. And they began to break the glass at that time to continue to remind them that even though the temple was destroyed, no matter where they were on the earth, they were still God's people and they were still a nation in spirit. Of course, the nation of Israel was reestablished in 1948, according to prophecy, and it came to pass. But uh, but they still break the glass <laughs> because of tradition. <laughs> Uh, but I decided to do some little extra personal research because I live in a retirement community that is about 55% Jewish at that time. And I go to the pool and swim uh, about four times a week. And a lot of the people in the pool were Jewish. So I started asking all of them, why do you break the glass? Well, you know what? Every single person gave me a different answer. Uh, so 2,000 years later, <laughs> they don't even know why they do it, <laughs> but they love to do it, and they shout, Mazel Tov! And so I uh, told uh, my bride this, and I said, but I have written uh, a little special thing I say uh, to break the glass, and uh, I can't, I say that in the when we're launching a ship for its first voyage on the great ocean, the great sea of life, we break a bottle of champagne over the bow of the ship. And so today, as we send forth bride and groom out on that great sea of life together, we're going to break the glass. And in this way, we will send them forth uh, with all of our blessings and our well wishes for them to have a long and happy married life. And that's what we did, and afterwards we all shouted Mazel Tov, and it was great. So let's look at some of these other traditions. Let's look at the father giving away the bride. Where did this come from? And do you still want to do this at your wedding? I have brides that are being married for the second and sometimes even the third time being given away by their father. I have to tell you, I am leading a one-woman crusade <laughs> to eliminate this wedding custom. However, it is a very strong tradition, and I perhaps won't see it eliminated in my lifetime unless, of course, I can enlist all of your help and then we could perhaps uh, change this tradition. This tradition goes back in time in history when a woman was merely chattel to be bargained for. The woman belonged to the community and her purpose was to provide the man comfort and to bear his children. The tribal leader gave his consent for her purchase and decreed to whom she could belong. 
originally, and then later on this consent was passed from the tribal leader to the girl's father. So as religions began to develop among the various cultures then, the consensus of society in general was that a man and woman's sexual behavior should be regulated by marriage. And it was the unwritten, but it was an unwritten law that the man would not always necessarily need to be monogamous. Most cultures in the world implicitly support monogamy for women, but men can take as many lovers as they want, including other men. It was, however, very important for any children to, to be born within the confines and protection of marriage as economic and inheritance considerations were involved. So in early times, long before DNA testing, the reason that bed sheets with the blood on them were hung outside the wedding chamber after the first marriage night was to prove to the world that the marriage had been consummated and that the woman had been a virgin. And any child born of that cohabitation would unquestionably be the groom's child. Now, this agreement between the father of the groom and the father of the bride very often was to unite kingdoms, to make a clan or a tribe or a family stronger against any adversaries. And sometimes it was to gain additional lands for farming or forestry that could serve as a buffer for safety purposes to lands that were already owned. And although even in primitive times and in all cultures of the world there have been couples who fall in love and convince the powers to be to let them marry, the father of the bride still negotiated a fee for, her, for his daughter's purchase. Now, the, the verb to husband means to farm. <laughs> to farm. That's what a husband means. To take care of the land, to tend to the affairs of the land. So a husband is, is basically a landowner or a farmer. And since the woman went with the, whatever bargain had been struck between the fathers, a bargain that almost always included the land, the woman was husband. She went with the land. She went from being her father's daughter to being a husband's wife with no identity of her own other than having the womb that would produce children and run the home. from this original tradition of the wedding bargain <clears throat> that has been struck between the groom's father and the bride's father, the amount of money that was paid um, for her purchase. And so that has trickled down to um, become an engagement ring. So the groom, instead of the groom's father... <laughs> paying uh, for it, the groom himself now uh, takes on this uh, part of the uh, tradition, 
and um, he uh, purchases an engagement ring, and then he asks his lady to marry him. And a lot of times today, I still hear the stories where the uh, groom does go to the bride's father and asks for her hand in marriage. Um, Sometimes the two of them go together. Um, But there still is a symbolism in the transfer of the woman's care and protection from her father uh, to uh, a husband. <clears throat> now, originally, um, the the woman got the then the the woman would begin to get an engagement gift. Uh, these gifts are still, um, you know, exchanged, especially in the Muslim community. Uh, they have the day before the the wedding ceremony. Um, the the gifts are exchanged, and actually, in that in the uh in that tradition uh the man still pays <laughs> for the the father of the groom still pays for the bride for his son so of course in the beginning when there was just the wedding engagement ring um then um then the at the time of the wedding ceremony then uh the woman was given uh the wedding ring and the men didn't wear rings um, at the beginning. Um, that began when, during, um, uh, in World War II, when our country then was uh, called into the involvement of the war in Europe, and our boys had to leave the homeland and go across the seas to fight in a war that was um, over there. And um, they they would want to, many times that's when um, a man and woman will get married. I'm, I'm close here to, uh, you know, Pendleton uh, Marine Base, and I have a lot of these um, weddings where the boy, the, the Marine has been called, uh, he has to go to back, you know, when we were fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan, and they had to go over there. They wanted to be married before they went, and that's when the uh, men started wearing the wedding ring. It was a symbol, a token to them that their loved ones were back home, you know, and loving them and giving them their support. <clears throat> they could look at that ring and feel that tie back to their loved ones. And a man would want to be married before he would go off to war. He wanted to have that sense of of grounding that um, that knowledge that someone loved him and um, would support him and was waiting for him to come back home. And then in doing my research to see what was the very biggest engagement ring that we have any uh, information on and, you know, in our current history. <laughs> and so far, no one has even come close, not the Kardashians or Beyonce or any of these ones that have just gotten these massive rings in our current times. But no one has come close to the 33-carat diamond ring that Richard Burton uh, gave to Elizabeth Taylor. That was um, estimated value of $8.1 million. 
So that one holds the prize for the biggest and the best. (laughs) So back in the days when the father of the groom and the father of the bride did make a bargain for so many cows or countries (laughs) for the marriage, then at the moment of the revealing, the bride would be publicly presented to the groom in the presence of the two families who were the witnesses. And the bride was veiled because in those Mideastern countries, as is, as, of, as is true also today, I mean, this hasn't changed really, this tradition of the woman uh, not being able to be uh, in public, she has to be completely covered. And so even her face would be veiled because they didn't hadn't met one another, and the unveiling wouldn't happen until um, the uh, groom would take his uh, bride into their home because part of uh, a groom being a husband and a landowner, he would have already had a home ready as well. And then um, the families of the groom and the families of the bride would be present uh, for the ceremony and then they were the witnesses and what they witnessed was that the man took the woman into the home and they closed the door. (laughs) Actually, actually the best man in those days uh, was uh, usually a man that was a good sword fighter, <clears throat> or he was a big strong man in the idea of a bodyguard. And his job was to protect the groom and keep him from any mischief, uh, anybody trying to kill him to keep him from um, consummating the marriage and then whatever the bargain was, you know, that was going to make these two families very, very strong. And so uh, actually in the altars of the churches and still today in some of these churches in the uh, in Europe and in the Middle East, um, there are weapons <laughs> under the altar. <laughs> and there were and there definitely were weapons in those days. And then if there was any kind of mischief uh, that would come up and all, then the best man's job was to put it down and he protected the groom and then in the in those original uh days um the bride and groom were given the first year to be together in the home and this was totally accepted within the community um because um they needed to produce an heir and and the bodyguard the best man's job was to guard the home and keep people from bothering them and giving them this time for them. You know, they didn't know each other for them to be able to begin to get acquainted and then uh, get busy on producing that air. <laughs> so that's how the witnesses um, started. And uh, and that's when it was started that was said during the ceremony, is there anyone here who knows why these two people should not be married? Speak now or forever hold your peace. Well, uh, sometimes, you know, the money hadn't been paid yet, so the bride's family would say, pay us the money. <laughs> and that would be a reason for them not to go forth 
you know, with the ceremony until the money was paid. Or perhaps someone in the family knew a family secret. You know, there have been plenty of those, haven't there? Not just then, but even today. Families keep terrible secrets, even today. But in those days, if there was a crazy uncle, you know, who was kept chained up in the basement and no one knew about him but the family, well, this could be revealed because the groom's father perhaps wouldn't want this particular bride then for his son because the whole reason for the woman was to give the family an heir and particularly a son. So no one would want to risk having a mentally disturbed child as an heir. You know, there was no DNA knowledge in those days. (laughs) No way to know any predispositions to mental illness or physical disfigurements. Only a family could disclose these things. Did you know that in choosing a mate for an arranged marriage in China still today, the prospective bride and groom are investigated back to the fifth generation? Well, aside from the selfish reasons for this, there is a benefit to the collective by not continuing to perpetuate the weaknesses within the gene pool. And so um, this whole idea of the father giving away the bride is something we look uh, need to perhaps reconsider. And I do have a 21st century presentation of the bride that I've used probably for the last 10 years, and um, I definitely think the father should walk the bride down the aisle, and um, that the wedding is the moment for this precious person, the bride, who has the womb, where um, the entire genetic streams of two individual groups of souls can now come forth to bless the earth and that for me is the real reason for a wedding that's the real reason for all of the celebration and every moment of a wedding should be concentrated and dedicated to the bride so now let's look at the tradition of the past. Remember those old-fashioned vows in which a woman promised to obey? You know what? I think I really said that when I got married. And I recently had a bride uh, who wanted to promise to obey her husband in the marriage ceremony. And I asked her, Uh, why she wanted to make this promise. And she said that her Christian church had taught her that she had to obey her husband. So I want to say something about that. Um, As you know, I'm untraditionally ordained. I did my ordination through a small university, which did not reflect any specific religious faith. We studied all the religions of the world and all the esoteric thought systems of the world. And actually, uh, for two years, I studied under a professor of a small college in uh, northern Indiana 
whose book had been is used in all of the seminaries across the country in all the different denominations uh, to uh, about the Old Testament and the prophets. His name was Dr. Hobart Freeman, and he was uh, fluent in the Greek and Hebrew, and he could read the manuscripts in their original. And he uh, taught us what the Bible really said. <laughs> um, I don't want to burst anybody's bubble, but what the church teaches us today and has down through the centuries since 320 A.D. is not what the Bible was, what not what the original manuscripts say. So uh, let's look at this uh, women obey your husbands thing. Um, First of all, that was written in the Middle East when women were not allowed to be seen in public, could not sit in church with their husband, and could not teach a man. Many Christian churches today still do say that the woman has to submit to the man. And I've even, I heard it preached one time from the pulpit. I couldn't believe my ears what I was hearing. And this well-meaning pastor um, said from the pulpit that if a woman is married to a man and if he beats her or slaps her around, knock, you know, knocks her around the kitchen, Uh, or is unfaithful to her, that she is to trust the Lord to change things for her. Um, And the scripture the uh, pastor used to preach this was, women, submit submit yourselves to your husbands in the Lord. And that's how he had interpreted it. Well, let's look at those last three words, in the Lord. That meant the husband, you trust a husband who's in the Lord. You don't trust in the Lord to protect you when he's beating you up. Um, So the in the Lord, a husband that's in the Lord would be a godly man. And certainly a man who beats his wife or cheats on her is not a godly man. A woman needs to run as fast as she can to get away from a man like that. And or to, never to consider a person like this as a potential or real husband. However, you know, subordination of women has a long history. Uh, in doing uh, my research on how women have been considered to be sub-creatures, <laughs> as late as 1954 in London, the newspaper reported that there were only about 20 murders a year now in London. This is 1954. And not all of them are serious. Some of them are just husbands killing their wives. So they didn't consider that serious. (laughs) The Koran does say, however, that men have authority over women because Allah has made the one superior to the other. How about that? And in China, before 1980, Uh, Despite new laws designed to protect women there, a husband could still legally beat and torture his wife. 
and even Mr. Shakespeare in The Taming of the Shrew (laughs) said, Thy husband is thy lord, thy life, thy keeper, thy head, thy sovereign. However, if you remember the the, the lady in that story... was not a submissive woman. That's why they called her the shrew. (laughs) They're just trying to get some control over her by telling her, submit, submit, submit. The truth is, however, that spiritually men and women are co-creators. Each one is made in the image and likeness of God and placed on earth in equal dominion over all of the other kingdoms, the mineral kingdom, the plant kingdom, and the animal kingdom. The Bible clearly states the dominion was given unto them, not him. The dominion was given unto them. Well, today, the clearer understanding of the true roles of male and female are that a woman chooses her own partner in life, and she's not bargained for. So it seems to me that a woman who still wants to be given away in the marriage ceremony by her father is inextricably tied to the past history of woman's suppression. And so I I think we need to, to look at that. However, there are a lot of women today that are still looking for a husband (laughs) in the sense that they just want to be taken care of. They don't want to work. They, They want to go from their daddy to their husband and have the husband uh, take care of them like uh, he takes care of his own personal life, which so that is in the true understanding of the word husband. However, there are 21st century brides that uh, could perhaps consider a new word for husband. Uh, Let's think about that. I would love to have you email me at mcheek0509 and let me uh, know what what kind of wording you would like to have. Uh, How about partner in life or true love or companion, uh, twin flame? soulmate, fellow traveler along the road of life, please let me know what words you would like to use instead of husband. Or if you still want to use the word husband and tell me why you would like to still use the word husband. I'm very interested to know about this. I do offer a 21st century non-religious, non-cultural, emancipated presentation of the bride in my ceremony. Um, I think the brides can still be walked down the aisle by her dad. There is a certain transfer here because the father has been the main man in the woman, in a daughter's life until she takes her takes on <coughs> her marriage, and there's a lovely moment there where the father can take her his daughter's hand and place it in the hand of the husband-to-be. Plus, um, I think a woman can walk more like a lady, especially if she's in high heels, 
uh, walked down the aisle on the arm of a gentleman. <clears throat> so then I asked, who stands with you today? I asked the bride, who stands with you today? And she'll say, you know, my dad or my father or whatever word she use, uses. <clears throat> and then I'll ask the dad, uh, is this a happy day for you? And uh, these dads, um, you know, it's kind of a bittersweet moment for them. This is their their precious baby that you're, they're now handing over to somebody else, authority, and and they. Uh, I've had a father say, "Bittersweet, you know, it's a bittersweet day, sad and happy." And, and I've had him say that. Well, it's, I'm happy and sad at the same time. And and then some dads say, yes, it's a happy day. It's about time. <laughs> and, uh, and then I ask them if they agree with and support their daughter's decision to be married to the groom. I think it's good to have a public declaration of that, that the family is in support of this union. Uh, family support is important for a marriage. Uh, you've got a a parent that's interfering and still wanting, uh, you know, doesn't recognize the new relationship. It, the Bible says the uh, man must leave his mother and father and cleave only unto his wife and there's a good reason for that uh, suggestion um, um, uh, the mother of the man has to relinquish that person to the wife otherwise she can cause an interference there and also, uh, the mother of the bride sometimes can still uh, put a lot of pressure and want to try to still be an influence in the bride's life to where it interferes with the bride and the groom beginning to make their own connection to each other and look to one another for their love and support. I really admire the Jewish uh, presentation of the bride and groom, and I encourage all of my couples to consider it because in the Jewish tradition, the mother, the father, and the mother of the bride, and the father and the mother of the groom present their children for marriage. And uh, when I, uh, I think that's just great. I mean, it takes two to tango, right? <laughs> so. Um, whether the uh, my couple is Jewish or not, I uh, suggest they do this, and that I will announce the groom, and his parents bring him in, and then I announce the bride. I have everybody stand, and her parents bring her in, and it's very dramatic and meaningful, and then it's very nice afterwards to have a thank you to those parents. I did a Persian wedding one time with... Uh, and they they just have a grand and glorious presentation of the bride and groom. The the couple has walked into the marriage ceremony location by all of their relatives, and in the history of this, <laughs> all the dogs and camels and donkeys and all the other animals and uh, it 
accompanied them, and uh, they beat drums and play other musical instruments, and they sing and chant and clap their hands. And there can be, in the case of uh, the one that I did, there was like almost 100 people that brought in the groom and then 100 people that brought in the bride. And they crowd around them, and they walk in teeny tiny little steps together, you know. So I had a couple recently who wanted to do this, and um, they walked in beating drums, they rang bells, they carried flags and balloons and banners, and the guests just loved this wedding, and the invitation told uh, what they were going to do and invited the guests to bring their own noisemakers and ways of celebrating. Have you ever wondered why all the bridesmaids dress alike? Now, this began back in the days of the belief in evil spirits. You know, actually, there still is belief in evil spirits today within certain cultures and religions. But in the days of long ago, it was generally accepted that all things that happened that were bad, that people couldn't explain, uh, was blamed on evil spirits. You know, those pesky, invisible little imps who just go around making trouble for everybody. So one way it was determined that could help keep the bride protected while she was making this passage from the protection of her father to the protection of her husband was to have all of the bridesmaids dress alike and then have the bridesmaids completely surround the bride and keep her... um, stand real close to her, and this would uh, protect her and keep her safe from the evil spirits. Uh, Because supposedly with them all dressed alike and all moving around all around the place, it would keep the evil spirits confused, and they would be distracted and not know, know which one was the bride. Now, the reason they would be trying to harm the bride is that marriages in those days were always to benefit the families and the community. And sometimes a group of evil spirits would be in cahoots with evil-minded people of that time who didn't want the union to take place because it wouldn't benefit them. It would threaten them and disempower them. So they would try to harm the bride. And this is also why the groom would carry the bride over the threshold because it was believed that evil, evil spirits sat on the threshold and would try to trip the groom so that the bride would fall and hurt her womb and not be able to bring forth the air that was going to uh, be the continuance of the control of the family's fortunes. Well, today, although there is still belief in evil spirits, we don't attach as much power to them as in the days when this tradition was started. We still do the traditions, but there is no esoteric power operating in them anymore. But actually, I did have one bride who had 12 bridesmaids, and she told me she couldn't pick just one of them to be a maid of honor. So she had each girl line up on both sides of the aisle, and she asked each one of them to dress in an outfit that would reveal their relationship. And then as she came down the aisle, I um, I told the story of uh, 
how the bride and that particular bridesmaid, uh, how they met and what their relationship was. So one girl dressed in her tennis outfit and carried her tennis racket, and one girl wore a ball game, a ball gown for when the two of them were in the Queen's Court together at a junior prom, and so on. I can't remember all of the outfits now, but each girl had a red rose. And as the bride went down the aisle, she collected the roses, and then this uh, was her bouquet. And then uh, when we did the thank you to the mothers right before the vows, then the bride gave six of the roses to the groom's mom and six of the roses to her mom. And everybody just loved this wedding and the new tradition. So a tradition is created by doing it over and over and over. I mean, the first time something is done, it's not a tradition. It's a new idea. But as other people continue to do it, it can become a tradition. So I would say to you, just be creative in planning your wedding. Be brave and perhaps do something at your wedding ceremony that never has been done before. And perhaps you will be establishing a tradition that someday someone in the far distant future will talk about on their radio show. (laughs) I'm going to play the mission bells from San Juan Capistrano that were ringing out one Sunday morning while I was visiting there celebrating a wedding. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.